Welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice, which is now being brought to you remotely from my electoral office in Coogee. On today's episode, we're talking with Lysia Heath, who's CEO of Women for Election, as well as one of the founders of Close East. On today's episode, we're talking about the need for a new co-educational public high school in the eastern suburbs, as well as the impact that COVID and the economy is having on our education system. We also touch on why and how we need to get more women into parliament. Welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. There's 15 private high schools and one public high school. The capacity issues are so bad. All of that capacity in the overcrowded primary schools in the east now is moving into the high schools and it's a big problem. Lizia, welcome to Coogee Voice. Now, we've got a lot to talk about today, but let's start off with your role as CEO for Women for Election. Tell us a bit about this and what the organisation does. Oh, it's such an exciting organisation. We, uh, well, essentially, we help encourage and equip more women to run for public office in Australia, and that could be at a local council level or a state or a federal seat. Wonderful. And I guess, broadly speaking, why do we need more women running for parliament? <laughs> oh, wow. How, how long have you got? I mean, I think we, what we need is more people with a diverse lived experience in our parliaments. You know, we're particularly focused on women. We are 51% of the population in Australia and we feel our legislatures should have if not exactly that number, then at least closer to that number. And we're just not even at critical mass, which is often thought of as 35%. So, you know, women bring a different lived experience to men, whether that be um, through child rearing, whether it be through aged care or um, particular interests in the environment. Everybody's interests and experience differs. When you have a homogenous experience set you tend to get a homogenous policy response and I think there would be many that would agree that we need greater variety in our policy in our country currently and policy solutions as well. So what do you see as the major challenges that face women who are trying to run for parliament? Why don't we have even at least 35 percent? There's there's a number of barriers we call it the four C's, which is childcare. If, if more women are looking after children in this country than, than less, then that is definitely a barrier to, to running. Cash is a big one. So it, it costs to run. And if you're already suffering a pay gap uh, in your industry, then you have less disposable income to, to, to campaign with. Culture is another one. So culture within parties in particular, some um, unconscious bias that exists, conscious in some occasions. 
And the fourth one is confidence. So just like there's research that exists about employment in the private sector and things like that, a woman would tend to want nine tenths of a skill set before they put themselves forward for, for a job. It's the same for stepping forward for running. You would have experienced this yourself. Different people would have tapped you on the shoulder, you know, whether it be one year ago, five years ago, nine years ago. And oftentimes a man would be more inclined to go, oh, yeah, I'm ready to do that, even when they're not. But women would be the reverse. So, you know, we need to encourage more women that we know are capable already to consider running. So how do we then overcome these challenges and address these four Cs? How do we give women confidence? How do we make sure that they have the cash that they need in order to run campaigns? Well, what Women for Election are focused on is is skills-based training events, primarily to help women understand how government works, how parties work, how pre-selection works. What are preferences? You know, the whole, the whole system of how you would run is a very, very opaque system. When it's opaque, people don't put themselves forward, particularly women. So, so let's start with making what is currently a very opaque system more transparent. And then there's the upskilling side of it. How do you run a campaign? Who's in a campaign team? What skills do you need if you're going to be doing public speaking in front of 12 people or if you're going to be doing it in front of 350? What are some press skills that you should be aware of? You know, and everything in between. And there's this interesting nuance that I have discovered, which is most of the women who end up doing our courses come out the other side and go, oh, I already had a lot of those skills. You go, exactly, exactly. There are women in our community everywhere and we've seen it through the bushfires we've seen it through the COVID response women stepping up in their communities looking after their neighbors going in front of council and talking about you know things that should be put in place in terms of assistance packages and things like that so many women have nine tenths of the skill of what a good politician should be but they haven't necessarily joined the dots that the one-tenth is all they need to supplement to run. And that confidence gap is what we're helping to address. I think part of the challenge as well for a lot of women is you cannot be what you cannot see. So as there is a really small group of women that are around that they may not necessarily look like, may not have had the same life experience, those women that are in there don't necessarily set realistic goals for what it's like to actually be in those positions. So I think it's one of those things, and I take it very seriously in my role, is to help other women up. In particular, I spend a lot of time with younger women, like saying, look, you can do this as well. I'm just a pretty average person. I never wanted to be a career politician. I had a totally different career before. I take it very seriously that I know I'm in a unique position. I'm the first woman to ever be elected for the seat of Coogee. This is despite the fact that for over 100 years, women have been allowed to run for state parliament and it's not okay and it needs to not take another 100 years for the next woman to be in there. But I guess I've got a question. Do you have an opinion around affirmative action and quotas? I have many opinions, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, but I, I think... Um, Women for election 
doesn't have a public stance on on quotas. I will note that Australia has fallen further and further and further down the ranks in terms of female representation in Parliament. And the reason we've gone backwards is because other countries have overtaken us. And the reason they've overtaken us is because their two major political parties in those countries both have quotas. So, you know, I don't think it's our position to go out and lobby for quotas. Uh, I think the evidence is there to show what, what quotas provide. And all the research that we've done and I've done on quotas is there are many, many different ways to instigate quotas. And I, I, um, uh, so it doesn't have to be the standard way that everybody thinks. You can, you can have a sunset clause on quotas, have them in for four years, create some change, create a critical mass and then remove them uh, because things can become self-perpetuating at a certain point. Or you can provide quotas on the people who actually vote in pre-selection in a seat. You know, I love to talk about watching closely what happened in Christopher Pine's seat in South Australia last year in the federal election. So it's very hard to get a, a woman into a, let's say, a federal seat unless uh, somebody dies or retires. It's, it's that simple. If a man dies or retires, in order to get more women, you need to replace a man with a woman. So there was great, great care taken to make sure in the pre-selection lineup for his seat, there was five women and one man. Now, when the pre-selection, pre-selectors all came to vote, um, the man was voted in. Now, the pre-selectors were all, <laughs> were 95% men over the age of 60. So you could have set a quota at that end instead. You know, there's many nuances to it. Unfortunately, it carries a stigma now, the old Q word, but I, I don't think it necessarily needs to. And, and often it's because people don't understand how it works. So one of the things you touched on is the importance of having women in the room because of the diversity in voices and the importance of that when it comes to policy and legislation as well as priorities. I guess one of the things last year, it was revealed that the Royal Hospital for Women did not have a mammogram machine. Now, this is despite the fact that they are the only female-specific hospital in all of New South Wales. Now, the state government was approached around this to fund. Do you think that there maybe if the health minister was a woman that maybe a mammogram could have been funded by the state parliament yeah it's such an interesting question i um does it need to be a woman to to see that clearly you know in my heart i want to say no it doesn't need to be but the evidence shows the contrary and it's not just the minister themselves, then it's everyone that's advising them around them or the, the heads of departments, you know. So, so there's the public service and then there's the elected officials as well. So it's, it's all a combination. And when, like I said before, if you have a homogenous view, if you've only got people that have sent their kids to private school batting for public school, that's a problem. If you've never put in a BAS statement but you're in charge of small business legislation, that's a problem. So all of that diversity, I would say, 
is missing to a large degree in a lot of our decision-making bodies. So, and what we're focused on is more women and more and more overseas we are seeing women mobilise and it's happening in Australia now too, which is exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, One of the things I'm really interested in is in the workplace, the structural challenges that women face. So things like having the morning meeting at 7.30am actually means that a lot of women can't participate in those meetings because they're generally the ones who, even if they are working, they're responsible for dropping the kids at school or picking them up. So Parliament's an interesting one like this because it's an incredibly traditional and rigid workplace that hasn't really innovated a lot over time. So the fact that you have to physically be present in the room to be able to vote, I think is one of those big challenges and it's actually putting some, it's actually highlighting some even bigger challenges now as we're in COVID um, around actually the capacity for parliament to be able to operate. Um, I guess COVID, women, what are your thoughts on this and the need for all organisations to be able to innovate uh, to allow for greater diversity and inclusion? Well, I think it's a very, very big problem if the highest entity in the land, the federal parliament, is calling on everybody to innovate and the one institution that isn't is that institution. You know, I think that alignment of interests is out of whack. Now, I understand there's constitutional issues and things like that in terms of voting, but I've certainly been reading a lot in the four weeks about how that's overcomable. So it's been fabulous to see how many businesses have projects that over four years they haven't been able to execute on and then the panic of the last four weeks does mean they've been able to deliver on them. You know, these sorts of crises do bear those opportunities. We are, if we don't innovate how our legislative chambers change in this kind of crisis, I don't know when they would. So, I am watching with very keen eyes as to how our legislatures change in this environment. Uh, Certainly, it's a barrier to entry for many people if you have to travel to Canberra to vote or you have to be somewhere till one in the morning to vote. So the evolution is possible. I guess the question is why wouldn't it evolve? Really good question. And I think it's something, as you said, there are obviously constitutional issues, but we're at a time where we really need people to innovate and change and we want them to. And I think this is the perfect moment to be able to use that opportunity and run with it and see how you know all institutions um, and parliament in particular can do that. Uh, Changing gears a little bit, Uh, let's talk about Close East and in particular the need for a new co-educational public high school in the eastern suburbs. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, we kicked off that campaign in 2016 uh, and, you know, we've just had fabulous support from the the community and, you know, it hasn't got any better through that time. In fact, it's got markedly worse and I take no pleasure at all in the fact that one of the predictions that we made about 18 months ago, which was a change in the economy, is upon us. And what was already a dire situation, if it wasn't code red, it was certainly code dark orange, um, is now absolutely code red. Think about 
the financial stress so many families in the east are going to be under what well, across the whole country but that financial stress is going to be real and in the federal seat of Wentworth that um Coogee is is the state seat of Coogee is a part of there's 15 private high schools and one public high school think of all the kids that were earmarked to go into private school next year that are now going to be going into the public system and kids that are already in the private system that will be moving into the public system as well the capacity issues are so bad you know i really think there's a gigantic disaster heading for our public high schools early next year so let's talk about these capacity issues so it starts with primary schools moves into high schools can you tell the audience a little bit more about this yeah well there used to be quite a number of public high schools in this neck of the woods uh you know 25 30 years ago and they they got closed over subsequent years by, by Labor and Liberal governments. Uh, and that left us with uh, Rose Bay Secondary College in the northern part of, um, of, the, of this neck of the woods and Randwick Boys and Randwick Girls in the, central, in the central part. And the capacity is particularly bad in the, in the northern part We've had a birth spike that occurred in the mid-2000s, complement, which I partook in, by the way, which resulted in so many kids being born across the country, um, you know, have one for each other and one for the country and baby bonuses and everything. And you can see the dynamics that shifted in that chart, in the population chart. Now, those kids have are at the end of primary school now in year six, really, year five, year six, year seven, and we call it the pig in the python. So there's a pig in the python and it's coming through. And it's as clear as day. A lot of people seem to have their head in the sand about it, but it's um, you know it's just starting to burgeon now. And and so what do you do if you've got three children now and it costs thirty five grand per child pre-tax? Um, that's a big impost for a family that that didn't exist fifteen years ago, twenty years ago in terms of fees. So the public high schools have been wonderful around this area, getting fantastic results and they're getting the patronage as a consequence. But, you know, their capacity isn't infinite. So all of that capacity in the overcrowded primary schools in the east now is moving into the high schools and it's a big problem. But hasn't the government just built a new high school in the inner city? Won't that be able to ease some of the capacity? Well, yes, they have built the inner city high school and uh, we had a tour of it uh, uh, the week before we got locked down, which was fabulous. My God, what an amazing school that's going to be. And we fought really hard for that. And, you know, I'm so glad that finally there was an admission made that the demographers in the Department of Education had been wrong. And there was an acknowledgement that a school needed to be built. Now, Anyone who knows inner Sydney would know how many dwellings have come online and are still due to come online. Population's tripling through that area, actually. But what we need now is to ensure that the East gets the equivalent capacity because all of that capacity in the inner high school is going to be sucked up 
by kids in that area, which it should be. It's, it's not going to allow any capacity for families over in the eastern beaches at all. You're absolutely right. Not only have you got thousands of apartments continuing to be built all throughout Zetland, there's also other issues with the inner city public high school around the catchment with it, where you've got kids that live a couple of hundred metres away now missing out. The other thing is as well, every single public primary school in the eastern suburbs is at capacity. Rose Bay Secondary College is at capacity. There are demountables there already being used to try and fulfill that. And if someone ever says to you that, uh, look, there's demountables, so there's space, that actually means that there isn't space. You've had to put demountables in because there is no space at all. So I've always been fully supportive of building a new and additional public high school uh, east of the city. There is very clearly a need for that. So in 2018, a study, feasibility study was conducted, which was looking at transforming or transferring Ramwick boys into a co-educational school. Now, the decision was made by the department that that wouldn't go ahead. What are your thoughts on that? Look, we went and met, met with the education minister in kind of May 2018 and Minister Stokes said one thing that could be done to ease the capacity in the short term, that's verbatim, was to conduct a feasibility study on Randwick Boys High School to turn it into a co-ed school, to bring it up to its capacity. We were delighted that that was going to take place. Certainly doesn't replace the need for a new school, but if it helped ease the issues in the short term, then um, you know, we thought that had merit. The process was a bit confounding, I'll admit, in terms of how the community was consulted and there was delays and, you know, I think it was four days before Christmas that the online capacity was released and ultimately the decision was made to not turn it co-ed. So in my view, that was essentially one year of nothing being done, an admission that something needed to be done in the first place, and an extra year of new dwellings coming into the area and land lost for potential new schools as well. So an admission was made, and now we're 18 months further along and nothing has been progressed. So it it was a real line in the sand moment for me to show all the money that had been spent on that feasibility study but nothing since. And I I know that's something you've been focused on, Marjorie, and, you know, we'll continue to focus on because it's just, it's not adequate how it has been left. I think also what's not adequate and part of COVID is really very much highlighted, I think, to the broader community as well, is gaps in funding and gaps in technology between our public education system and our sort of private and independent uh, systems. You know, I meet kids from different schools all the time and the difference in technology that the public education system has vis-a-vis that of the independent uh, and private schools. What are your thoughts on that and funding for public schools versus independent and uh, private schools? Look, nowhere is that inequality more noticeable than in our area because you have the elite 
of the elite private schools in our area. Um, if you picked up Rose Bay Secondary College and dropped it anywhere around the country, it would be an extraordinary, highly prized school. But when parents compare it against a Scottish library or a northwest, east, west facing double pool or, you know, a guide, uh, you know, an orchestra pit, uh, it, it looks like a poorer cousin. Um, the funding model has been so out of whack and I was bitterly disappointed where I, when I saw Scott Morrison release last year the, um, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was like $1.6 billion uh, innovation fund for private and independent schools. And then the ABC did an analysis to show that the top 1% of private schools spent $3 billion and the bottom 50% of public schools who were educating 50 times as many kids spent $2.6 billion. Like it was just so inequitable. And this goes back to the heart of what we were talking about at the start in terms of I am concerned that there isn't enough people with lived experience sending their kids to public schools in our decision-making bodies that are fighting for public education. Gonski and the reforms were a fantastic initiative, but the watering down of those at different state-based issues is, is problematic, but it's still worth fighting for, definitely. But it cannot be denied that at the same time that these private schools have got increased public funding, is the exact same time that they have increased their fees to parents at a greater rate than they've ever done before. I don't understand why there's not a greater deal made of that. <laughs> this double dipping is extraordinary, but it feeds largely to the anxiety of many parents in terms of how they educate their children and that they have to be somehow brave or show courage to send their kids to the local public high school. And I think that's a sad state of affairs that we're in. I guess there's there's two things I want to comment on that about. The first one is New South Wales is the only state in Australia that does not fully fund education up to the Gonski recommendations, and that was an election issue. Um, and Labor proudly went to the election saying we will fully fund public schools up to the Gonski recommendations. The second thing is, as well, I'm sure you know, Tanya Plibersek, who is our shadow, federal shadow education, mm -hmm. she sent her daughter to Ramit Girls. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. There's, you know, there's a woman. <laughs> Yeah, a woman swinging for public education with her kids <laughs> in public education. You know, God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alicia, just to wrap things up, I've got a couple of little quick uh, local eastern suburbs questions I need to ask you because I know you are a true blue local. <laughs> Firstly, what is your favourite beach? Bronte. Bronte. Okay. Where is the best place to get coffee? Cafe Selena. Cafe Selena. Okay. All right. And where can you get the best burger in the eastern suburbs? Oh, my favourite one closed down last year. Uh, God, I do like grilled in Bondi Junction. 
Okay. <laughs> I love it. Lucia, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Coogee Voice. And I hope you're staying safe over this period and having fun um, with the kids at home. I can see that we're in your son's bedroom. That must be the quietest place in the house. It is um, at the moment, yes. <laughs> so he's being entertained somewhere else. He's in front of TV, yes. <laughs> That's more than fine. Lucia, well, <laughs> thank you for joining us on Coogee Voice. Thanks for having me on. Now, I don't know about you, but I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Lysia, and it's interesting to hear about how widespread COVID is impacting our community. Just an update as well for those of you who are wondering about the mammogram machine. The foundation raised the money for it, and the state government did not put a cent in. Now, if you are struggling during this time and you need help being connected to services, please reach out to my office. We're here to help. The number is 93981822. You've been listening to Coogee Voice.